Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There are moments in life that you know you'll never forget. The big ones. Births, deaths and marriages, of course. But then sometimes it'll be a random conversation on a bored afternoon, but you remember it so vividly because you know that that was the moment that changed the course of your life. So it was just after my 14th birthday and I was at my school in West London. It was the end of PE and I was sat next to this girl called Lizzie who was known for being the skinniest girl in our class. And I hadn't ever thought about that before. But I said to her without really thinking about it, is it hard to buy clothes when you're so small? And I suddenly realized I felt envious of that because to not be able to buy clothes for yourself, that must mean you're really special. And she said, yeah, I wish I was normal like you. And at that point, the anorexia just totally kicked in for me. It was a warm spring day in May 1992. And for Hadley Freeman, nothing would ever be quite the same again. Anorexia would soon take over her thoughts, her personality, and would even threaten her existence. If the choice was death or eating, I would choose death a thousand times. That might sound extreme, but it's not unusual. Not for people who suffer from anorexia nervosa, one of the deadliest mental health illnesses. And across the last two years, hospital referrals for children have risen by 82% in England. The pandemic is fueling an alarming rise in eating disorders. Last year, more than 10,000 people were hospitalised with anorexia in England, and over 7,700 of them were children. Today, we hear an unflinching account of what it's like to be treated for the illness. It's not always an easy lesson, but if you or anyone you know has been affected by anorexia, then we think it's a really important one. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how Hadley Freeman broke free from anorexia.
My name's Hadley Freeman, and I'm a staff writer for The Sunday Times. Hadley is also an author, and her latest book, Good Girls, A Story and Study of Anorexia, is about her own experience with the eating disorder, which she developed as a teenager when a classmate told her she was normal. So that was what doctors call the trigger. And the trigger doesn't have to make any sense. Sometimes it does. Sometimes Mm. it can be a father telling his daughter that she's looking a bit chubby in a photo or a teenager wanting to be a size eight like their best friend. And other times it can be a food poisoning. For me, hearing the word normal, that meant not special, nothing, average. But the truth is, the anorexia had been building inside of me for a long time. I mean, that's the thing with the triggers. The trigger is really irrelevant, and it's not what the anorexia is about. The anorexia is like an accretion of life experiences and how you as an individual emotionally process them. So this trigger has set in. It's probably a result of years of experiences, but when something in your head suddenly snaps... What happens? What changes for you that summer? For me, I just completely and immediately fell into the anorexia. Other people take a while to build into it. They become vegetarian, maybe, or start taking up light jogging in the morning. But for me, I, I'm always a very all or nothing person. And I just immediately, like from the next day, started skipping lunch then started skipping breakfast. I cut out whole food groups. Suddenly I wasn't eating cheese and certainly wasn't eating any sweets, whereas I normally ate two chocolate bars a day before that. And then I signed up at the gym for all these exercise classes. It's funny now, you know, this was 1992 and there wasn't this wide awareness like there is now anorexia. So no one said anything. The gym never stopped me coming. And I was going Mm. about three times a day and running on the treadmill and doing the high impact aerobics classes with all these like 30 year old women around me. Uh, I mean, it's funny looking back on it. And obviously it's also completely tragic in many ways. And for your family, are they picking up that something has changed? You know, you're, you're suddenly not eating chocolate bars. You're <laughs> going to the gym three times a day. Do they notice that you're not eating? Yes, they immediately noticed. And I, it's hard for me to talk to my parents about it because they still find it so incredibly painful. And they tried all the things that nice parents do. My parents are very sweet. There wasn't screaming fights about food, not not yet at that point. There was just kind of an attempt at gentle persuasion. So taking me out to my favorite restaurant, making my favorite meals, you know, trying to talk to me very seriously about, mm. you know, how the body needs food. And I needed food to grow and be taller. And it just nothing made any difference for me. I just wasn't eating. Did you miss food? Oh, God, desperately. It's always a surprise to me when people say, but anorexics aren't hungry. I mean, of course we're hungry. You know, we're human beings. We're yeah. we're not eating. We're dying of hunger, literally. All I thought about for decades was food. That's all I thought about. And I would make lists in my head about what I would allow myself to eat once I was thin enough, which I never, I could never elaborate to myself what thin enough meant. But I would dream about toffee crisps and bagels and grilled cheese sandwiches. You know, I desperately missed food, but I knew that the guilt of eating any of that far outweighed my desire to have it. And in the meantime, you know, your parents are clearly getting worried. They can see you're not eating in the way that you were. How is it affecting your mood and the way you are? I was 
furious most of the time and tearful and angry with my parents for trying to get me to eat because it felt like they didn't understand that I had no choice in this matter. I was a mess. My hair was falling out. I had hair growing all over my body. I was desperately hungry and unhappy and scared because I didn't, I had no real understanding of what I was doing and what was happening to me. I mean, it just, because it does sound remarkable. I think for most people listening, you know, you, you literally just, there's a switch. You go from being a happy to a completely different person overnight. I mean, how bad did it get? It got very bad. I had a limit in my head about the number of calories I would eat a day. I went out and bought a calorie counter. I went away with my parents and my sister in August on a summer holiday, and it was just a disaster, and I wasn't eating, and my mother was so upset. And when we got home, she took me to my GP, who then referred me to an eating disorder psychiatrist, and he weighed me, and he said, okay, you know, you're obviously anorexic. I need you to go home, and if you can eat a cookie, then we'll make a meal planned for you. And if you can't eat it, I'm going to check you in. And I went home and my mother tried to get me to eat this cookie and I just absolutely couldn't. It felt like it was like a kind of magnet, you know, repel force between me and the cookie. Like there was just no way I was eating this thing. And so the next day I was checked into hospital. Just taking a step back, just explain what exactly is anorexia? Is it the same for everybody? There are different ways of expressing it. Some anorexics, for example, make themselves vomit. Some use laxatives. The most common form is restricting, which is means you don't eat very much and often exercise a lot, which is what I did. And it differs from bulimia in that bulimics generally are at a normal weight range. They binge eat and then make themselves throw up. Whereas the common denominator for all anorexics is that they're extremely underweight. And just how common is it? So the makeup of anorexia patients is roughly 90% female and roughly 10% male, although there are some theories that actually it's greater for women. The statistics say that it's generally been kind of steady, the rates of anorexia. It's about 1% of women and girls in this country. But rates have allegedly risen under COVID, and also it's affecting younger and younger girls. And one theory behind that is because puberty for various reasons is starting earlier because anorexia invariably kicks in around puberty and adolescence. You know, it may not sort of explode until later in a woman's life, but it always mm. kicks in around then. And for you, at the age of 14, to suddenly find yourself in hospital with it, I mean, firstly, how did that feel going into hospital? And, and what was that experience like the very first time? Well, so I was first in Hospital One, which is a private psychiatric unit. So it was incredibly weirdly luxurious, which is not typical for a lot of people. You know, I had my own room. There were a relatively high number of nurses per patient. And I didn't realize until later, until I went to different kinds of hospitals, how unusual that was. But it was extremely strange. Like I'd gone from being a girl whose only interest was what I would get on my French test that week, and would I go to the shopping mall with my friends on Friday afternoon, to being in a psychiatric unit where 
You know, there were schizophrenics. I was on the same ward as the alcoholics and drug addicts. And I was the youngest on the anorexia ward then by quite a lot, by about a, a, between six to 10 years, really. So it was incredibly unnerving in a lot I mean, of ways. It sounds terrifying. It was terrifying. It was also in some ways a huge relief because I couldn't deal with being in the outside world anymore and trying to figure out whether I was supposed to eat and, you know, you know what to do. I needed other people to tell me what to do. I couldn't deal with the guilt anymore, which is not to say like when they were serving me food, I was like, thank God I can eat. Like, obviously that's not what happened, but I needed someone else to be in charge. I fought a lot and they put me on medication, lithium and Prozac because I was so hysterical whenever they tried to give me food. And after that, I started having epileptic seizures. So, you know, it, in a lot of ways, it was a horrible experience. I mean, it sounds awful. And that's a heady mix of drugs that you're being put on. What did treatment actually look like there? I mean, how were they trying to, to make you feel better? So for anorexia, it's mainly about feeding up. And so it was mainly just sitting around and eating. It was three three-course meals a day and three large snacks. And you eat what you're given whether you like it or not, and you have to eat every bite. And then in between, you kind of just sit in the lounge and smoke or lie on your bed and cry. Or, <laughs> um, it's, it's a fairly desperate situation, really. By the time you're discharged from this place and you've got onto a, a regime where you can have these three-course meals, are you better <laughs> when, when you're sent home? Is that sort of job done? Um, no, I was, I was way worse. I think my poor parents were desperate to believe that I was better because I looked better. I'd put on a stone and a half or something like that. So I was no longer in danger. So as, as soon as you're no longer in danger, they check you out and you're going to get weighed once a week and you'll see your mm. psychiatrist once a week and you have to keep eating these meals. You have to keep putting on weight. But when I was in hospital, what I'd learned was what I was, which is anorexic. And I'd learned what anorexics do. And I'd learned tricks about how to control your weight for example, how to make yourself sick and what exercises are really good at burning calories and how to hide food and stuff like that. And so I went out of the hospital. I, I just like, I am going to pursue my path here, which is very common for a lot of girls who go into hospital. And so then I left hospital. I immediately lost weight again. I went back into hospital a few months later. I was there for six months. I left. I lost weight again. And then I went in for a third time. That's a lot of hospitalizations at a very young age. How worried were your doctors? My GP was extremely worried about me. I was fainting in the street all the time and passing out. And yeah, it was, it was really very bad. Like I, almost all my hair had fallen out. I, it, I just, <laughs> I was a mess. How serious could this have been? Well, he told my mother that she should she should accept that there is a high chance I could die, that I would die from this, because I was just determined to keep going to the end. And I kind of wanted to die from it at that point, because that just seemed preferable to eating. Like, <laughs> like, if the choice was death or eating, I would choose death a thousand times. And also, I thought that would really prove how strong I was. Like, wow, like people would really think boy, she really, she really meant something. She refused to eat to the point of death. She achieved something, that one. Like that is honestly how my mind worked. I didn't want to kill myself because that just seemed like a cheater's way out. But I thought, yeah, you know, really going till your organs shut down. That's, boy, that's really pushing it. Oh, um, hardly. <laughs> I mean, your mind is just completely scrambled. 
at that point. And all I thought about was food. I would just stand outside bakeries and like look at the windows and look at the buns. Like my life was so tiny and miserable. But Hadley didn't want to spend her life like that. Coming up, we'll find out what inspired her eventual breakthrough. That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm James Marriott, a columnist, book reviewer and podcast reviewer for The Times. It's my job to explain and contextualise our turbulent social and cultural landscape in a way that's as interesting, informative and as original as possible. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. So in September 1992, just four months after that trigger moment, Hadley is hospitalised for the first time in the private psychiatric unit, which we're calling Hospital One. But it didn't cure her anorexia, and she was soon stuck in a cycle of going in and out of hospital. Just over a year later, in December 1993, she was checked into an eating disorder unit, which Hadley calls Hospital Three. 
Well, so the next one I went to is Hospital 3. That's an NHS place. And that was very different and in many ways extremely difficult. All of us, it was about 12 of us, all slept in this single room, like a dorm, and we ate our meals there at this long table. And the women in there were really very, very severely anorexic and had been for many years. Like, again, I was the youngest. A lot of women there were in their 30s. And there was a lot of bullying and everybody was hiding food. And it was it was just kind of chaotic. When you say hiding food, what would they be doing? They would be throwing food under the table, putting food up their sleeves, chewing it and then spitting it up their sleeves. It's like a disgusting illness, anorexia. They'd be like flicking their food onto another patient's plate to watch the other patient then have to eat it. It was really horrible. And there was this one nurse who was just a real physical bully who would shout a lot and slam the table. And, you know, if you refused to eat, she would kind of like hold you around your body with one arm and force the food in. Um, And there was this one time when I had a seizure because I was still having these epileptic seizures all the time at the table and she thought I was faking. And it was just because this other nurse, this really nice Caribbean nurse called Gladys stopped her that she didn't then, that the bully nurse didn't choke me with food. I mean, it was it was pretty, it was very, oh, very Victorian in a lot of ways. I mean, this sounds, this sounds toxic. N- not only do you have the unsympathetic nurse, <laughs> but it sounds like, you know, that you talked about bullying. Just tell us a bit about the other patients you met when you got to this hospital and, and what, what they were like. Well, there was three who were the real bullies of the ward. And bullies in a really anorexic way. And an anorexic is really good at bullying other anorexics. They would try to sneak to see the our, everyone's weight charts in the nurse's station. All of us would get weighed every day and see who weighed more than them and, you know, make sure they let that person know, make snide comments if they thought you enjoyed your food, because there's nothing more shameful to an anorexic than the idea you might enjoy your food. And a lot of competition about who could hide the most food, who could sneak in the most exercise, who could sneak in being sick in the bathroom. There was no sense of like solidarity. We're getting better together. It was very much the opposite of that. But having said that, you know, there were also very nice girls on the ward who I became friends with, one of whom is called Nikki Hughes, who was a couple years older than me, but was checked in the same day as me who kind of looked after me and stayed very close to me. And I always just assumed in this very immature way, oh, she seems fine. She doesn't seem to struggle the way I do. And then a few years after I was, I finally had left hospital for the last time, I opened the newspaper and there was an article saying that she died, that she died in hospital from not eating, which happened a couple of times with me. I'd see patients who I'd been in hospital with and then suddenly you open up a newspaper and a few years later and they've died. I mean, that must be horrifying. It's quite, it's extremely, um, yeah, I mean, it's very sad. But the kind of incredible thing with Nikki is in hospital, she was always trying to help people. She was the only patient who was trying to encourage us to get better. Nikki died because she hadn't been sectioned, so the hospital couldn't put a tube in her to get up her nutrition. And after she died, the law was changed that even if an anorexic has not been sectioned, i.e. put into a hospital by law, they can still, or the hospital has the right to feed them even if the patient hasn't given permission, which used to be the case. So in the end, her death changed the law, which is a very Nikki, Nikki thing to happen.
I mean, that is horrifying when you suddenly realize just how bad it could be when things go so, so wrong. It sounds like, you know, the laws were changing while you were going through this. It's almost like they were learning while watching your cohorts, you know, and the experiences that you're all having. In a way, I mean, it doesn't sound like they really knew how to deal with anorexia. You could be bullied or people were watching you eat, but these are people who would be judging you for actually succumbing. That just sounds really unhealthy. It sounds almost like competitively starving. Yes, and it's very difficult to get away from that because it's a ward with women and girls living very close together, all suffering from the same thing. So, you know, even on wards where there isn't that problem, there is often a kind of boarding school feel to it. You're all in there for three to six months. You know, it's not like a typical hospital ward where people are in for two days. Like, of course, there's that kind of cliqueiness and competitiveness. And it's really up to the nurses and the doctors to try to intercede. And they did get better at that, like I should say. That experience in Hospital 3, that was the only time things have been really bad like that. One of my big obsessions certainly was always, if there was pie for lunch, who would get the corner pieces? Like this was an absolute fixation with all of us. Because that would mean you would get three slices of pastry, the two sides and the topping. Like who who would have to eat the most pastry? Like we're Uh. all obsessing about this all the time and looking around to see what other people have. It's a competitive illness in a lot of ways. And then it's, you know, a lot of girls and women living together in a competitive environment. And being cooped up in that dorm and watching how these other women are eating or not eating, do you end up picking up some of their habits? Does it get worse? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is the problem with it. And I managed to stop, but not till I was in my 30s. So things like trying to squeeze all the grease out of the food with your fork, you know, mashing your food down, trying to eat in a very babyish way, almost like one pea at a time, spreading the food around the plate as much as possible to try and leave as many dregs. And this is all happening in in the dorm where you sleep. You have one big dorm <laughs> where you sleep and eat and and that's life. Yeah. And, you know, there are some days when we wouldn't leave the dorm. We would go straight from our beds to the table in the middle of the room, eat breakfast. That would take so long. It would leak into morning snack. That would then take so long. It would leak into lunch. I mean, it was it was pretty grim. And is it taking long because you're deliberately slowing it down? Eating as slowly as possible is almost as much of a badge of honor as eating as little as possible because it's a public show of how ill you are. So eating a biscuit literally crumb by crumb, crumbling it up and then licking your finger and eating crumb by crumb. Like that that was quite a common way of doing it, certainly in Hospital 3. Obviously, these came from real feelings, but it was also very performative. You're showing to all the other girls and women around you that you are the illest. You see, I, I, that's that's what feels so strange about it, because you can understand the competition around wanting to be the thinnest, wanting to have less to eat than the others, but to be competitive about being the illest. Well, it's because anorexia isn't about being thin. Like, people never understand this. It's about being ill. If you wanted to be thin, you just lose half stone. That was the obsession I had with dying from anorexia. Like, I just thought that will really prove how ill I was. Like, I wasn't, I wasn't a day tripper here. And at this stage, I mean, is it starting to feel like this is just the new normal? You're going to be going in and out of hospital forever? Yeah, I just, I mean, I couldn't see any other way because I wasn't going to eat at home. I can't, I I lose track all the time. I, I think I had eight hospitalizations, eight or nine in total. And the women I was in hospital with were like in their mid 30s and up to mid 50s. And they'd been in and out of hospital all their lives. Wow. They, they were chronically anorexic. And I thought, okay, yeah, this is it then. This is what my life is now. 
I mean, that's terrifying because that that would still have been you now. Yeah. Oh, no, definitely. There are times in a day when I will look at a clock and I'll think, oh, 12, right? They're going in for lunch now. You know, 10 o'clock, oh, it's time for morning snack. My mind is still half there. Like, I still know how my life would be. And I could see it. I'd be living at home with my parents. I'm 44 years old now. Living at home with my parents, probably in a wheelchair because of my osteoporosis. You know, my mom, once again, giving another go, taking me to a hospital, checking me in. I'd have my little bag. Like, it's all very real to me. I can totally see how that would have panned out. Thankfully, Hadley's life didn't turn out that way. But Hospital 3 wasn't quite the end of her journey. While she was there, the Eating Disorders Unit was moved to yet another hospital, which we're calling Hospital 4. And it was there that she eventually had a breakthrough. Well, for me, the most important thing always was that I kept up with my schoolwork. When we went out to Hospital 4, uh, my psychiatrist got me a therapist who I called JF in the book, who was wonderful and was the first mental health professional that I felt was smarter than me and who I couldn't talk around. Not that I was such a genius at 15, 16, but I felt I couldn't manipulate really. And she was absolutely adamant that I had to keep up with my schoolwork. There were a couple of teenagers in hospital with me at this point who I knew had dropped out of school to focus on their recovery. That was what doctors always told them to do, to focus on their recovery. My mom would come on the weekends and pick up whatever work I'd done, take it to the school, and she would drop off new work that the school had assigned for me. So my poor mom had to kind of bear the brunt of that, like shuttling my schoolwork back and forth. And my school amazingly and thankfully arranged for my GCSEs to happen in hospital because I wasn't well enough to take them outside. And because I think I I had half an eye or half a foot really in the outside world, really, I was able then at this one morning at breakfast, one of the, in fact, one of the bully women who had just turned 32 was having a real, I mean, there's no other way to put it, a temper tantrum about her toast because she felt she had more butter on it than everyone else, which, you know, was a very common thing. It's not fair. Other people have less than me. And I looked at her and I just suddenly, this thought came into my head, which is I will not be having temper tantrums about toast when I'm 32. And suddenly yeah. there was just, it wasn't like I suddenly was better. I wasn't. I was still in and out of hospital a couple of times after that. But it was suddenly this glimpse of, okay, right, maybe it doesn't have to be that way. That's amazing. Suddenly an alternative future starts to open up. And apparently it's very common. Like One of the eating sore doctors I spoke to, Professor Lacey, who's very experienced and respected, he said sometimes it can come from the strangest of sources, like a patient talking to a nurse about what are you doing this weekend? And the nurse saying, oh, I'm doing this, going to the pub with friends, going to a yoga class, whatever. And the patient's suddenly thinking, I want that. Like, I don't want to be in hospital yeah. the weekend. Which is why I always tell people when they ask, what can I do to help my daughter or my sister? I always say, keep telling them about the outside world. They have to know stuff that's going on outside and that it is there for them to rejoin. Something that's worth getting better for. And when you did start to turn a corner, obviously it's not instant, what did recovery look like for you? <laughs> I mean, I, it 
sort of it was funny looking back on it when thinking about how mental I still was when I was ostensibly recovered. So I went to a Cramer boarding school to do my A levels in a year. And I told the school that I didn't want to eat with other people. So I had a little fridge in my room. And I ate the same thing every day for about five years because I just felt if I if this didn't put weight on me yesterday, it's not gonna put weight on me today. That's how I thought about it, which is disgusting. Like wow. looking back on it. I was also completely riddled with OCDs. I washed my hands so much that they bled. You know, I couldn't bear anyone touching me. I had this fear of calories somehow transferring onto me. From people touching you? Yeah, people touching me or me touching things. Like I couldn't touch things. But somehow I, I also transferred a lot of the anorexia energy into studying. So I just studied obsessively to an insane extent. And because of that, I was able to get my A-levels and go to university. And by then, I mean, does anorexia sort of become a distant memory or is it something you're constantly still dealing with? Yeah, I mean, there's, I'm definitely functional. I'm not eating the same thing every day. And I've had three children. Like, No one would look at me and think, wow, look at that anorexic. But I'm still really fussy about food. And it's got nothing to do with weight or calories now. It's things I can bear eating because I have this really like very strong level of disgust in me about things. And that is the anorexia. Like People think anorexia is about being thin, but I think it's really about killing your joy. And I still have a mind that's really good at killing the joy of eating. Killing joy is such an interesting way of <laughs> framing it. I mean, I hadn't thought of it like that before. <laughs> You know, in order to write this book, you've gone back and you've revisited one of the hospitals that you were in as a child, as mm. a teenager. Do you think the treatment around anorexia, has, has it got much better? Hospital 4, where I went to visit, now gives the patients much more control over their food choices, which we didn't really have. Like, you can order a vegan meal in Hospital 4, and they cut people down on exercising and making themselves sick slowly, whereas when I was in, you stopped totally. So it's it's trying to work much more with the patients on an individual way rather than treating them en masse. Mm. Are they still doing the group meals? They still eat together. I think the competitiveness really depends on the mix of the patients in at the time and, of course, how much the nurses can deal with them. And how easy is it to get treatment now? Well, I think it's very difficult, which is another problem. CAMS, which is Child and Adult Mental Health Services, is incredibly overstretched. And there's massive waiting lists for the beds. And I was very lucky to get treatment in the way that I could. And Hadley, you went on to actually work in the world of fashion. Mm. Was there just a sense that, or it's often sort of talked about as being one of the industries that almost encourages mm. young girls into anorexia or you know it sort of gives them these impossible images that they they're supposed to try and emulate did you get a sense while you were there that this is an unhealthy world i knew it was in a lot of ways an unhealthy world but i also think it's not the most unhealthy world like i really don't want to be like fashion's defender here because obviously there's a lot about fashion that's insane and ridiculous but i look at the celebrity world to me, that is way more bonkers and unhealthy than the fashion world. You know, you have Gwyneth Paltrow talking about how she doesn't eat breakfast and then has something called bone broth for lunch and then exercises for two hours. Or Victoria Beckham talking about how her favorite food is toast with salt. The idea that those women present an aspirational image of womanhood and they're bragging about how little they eat. 
that's not from fashion. Like that expresses a really messed up idea of how we think women should be. And fashion takes this message and definitely amplifies it. Um, But really, it comes from the idea of how little girls and women should be. And that comes from femininity. This is why I talk about children's literature in the books. Skinny little girls are always good, or good girls are always skinny, I should say. You know, and fat ones are bad. From the start, girls know that they're supposed to be thin. It's a very clear message. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, in a way, that, you know, there is a temptation to look at the world of fashion and celebrity and think that maybe this is a very modern illness, but a lot of those stories were written a long time ago. Yes, and the phenomenon of girls not eating has existed for more than millennia. It used to be that these medieval girls who wouldn't eat, they'd be worshipped as saints, you know, or if they died, it was seen as like uh. their pure religiosity was taken too far, just as now we say, oh, you know, these anorexics, it's perfectionism taken too far. Not eating is a way a lot of women and girls for a long time have expressed unhappiness. And it's often the only power they feel they have, the only control they feel they can exert is to not eat. Do you think as a society we've learned how to talk about anorexia properly or how to think about it properly? Because, you know, the Although, you know, things have changed from when you were hospitalized, it is still a very deadly illness. It is the deadliest mental illness. And the general statistic is that while one third of anorexics recover to varying degrees, a third of them remain chronically anorexic, i.e. in a hospital for the rest of their lives, and a third die. I mean, that's, that's a lot. And yet it's kind of treated as this indulgence of private schoolgirls. It's interesting you say it, an indulgence of private schoolgirls. And I think that is, sadly, part of the image. Is it almost like alcoholism? It used to be seen as a weakness and nobody thought of it as a mental illness. Is it that that hasn't changed with anorexia? Partly it is very common among private schoolgirls. Doctors say it now spans the social classes. And I certainly found that when I was in hospitals three and four. But it is largely suffered by white girls. And it comes on in adolescence. So therefore, it's seen as this kind of privileged teenage thing, as opposed to an expression of really deep unhappiness to the point that these girls would rather die than continue. Yeah. For you, is there anything that you wish you could have told your 14-year-old self? I'd say, you know, if you What you're doing is just going to make everything you worry about so much worse in terms of upsetting your parents and making growing up difficult. All those things will be amplified by the anorexia. For someone who didn't want to upset their parents, I really upset my parents. And one girl I talked to in the book, I think I call her Daisy, said it was only by being anorexic that she felt she was allowed to be angry with her parents because she could tell herself, it's not it's not me that's shouting at my parents, it's the anorexia. And I, I wish I could have told my, my teenage self, I wish I could tell all teenage girls, you're allowed to be angry and sad and lonely and confused and sweaty and gross and curious about sex or fearful about sex. Like these are all normal feelings. It's okay. You don't need to try to reverse time and go back to being eight years old to deal with them. And what, what advice would you give to their parents? 
to get help. I, that's the only thing I ever say is to try to get help because you need to outsource this. And also because parents aren't equipped to this. This is a serious mental illness. Like, how would a parent be able to deal with this problem? They need medical help. If you've been affected by issues in this podcast, you can find support at www.beateatingdisorders.org.uk, where you can also find the number for one of their national helplines. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, columnist and features writer at The Sunday Times, Hadley Freeman. You can find all of Hadley's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. And you can also pre-order her book, Good Girls, A Story and Study of Anorexia Now. It'll be published on the 13th of April. And if you're a subscriber, you can also read an extract from the book in yesterday's Sunday Times magazine online. The producer today was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. <laughs>